Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, Underground Atlanta has been sold again. What's next for this historic downtown property? I'll ask the new owner, Shanil Lalani. Everybody, or at least we thought, you know, we should compare this with the Avalon, with the Pond City Market. That's what we looked at, that, hey, this could be something turned into something similar. That conversation coming up in just a moment. Also, Public Broadcast in Atlanta has a new president and CEO. My conversation with Jennifer Dorian is later in the program. But we'll begin with this. The first shipments of the COVID-19 vaccine, well, they arrived in Georgia Monday. According to the State Department of Public Health, the shipments contained 5,850 doses. A broad inoculation program begins today for high-priority people in Chatham, Glen, and nearby counties. State health officials say additional shipments of the vaccine are expected later this week to other parts of Georgia, including Metro Atlanta. Now speaking with NPR Morning Edition host Rachel Martin, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's top infectious disease expert, explained what it would take to drastically mitigate the spread of the virus. Well, I mean, I would say 50 percent would have to get vaccinated before you start to see an impact. But I would say 75 to 85 percent ratio would have to get vaccinated if you want to have that blanket of herd immunity, namely so many people getting vaccinated that the virus really doesn't have any place to go. Essentially, what we did with measles in this country, what we did with polio in this country. If you get that level of herd immunity, you could essentially crush this outbreak in this country. But it's going to take a lot of effort to get that relative percentage of people to get vaccinated. And hopefully we'll be able to do that before the end of the year. Meanwhile, coronavirus hospitalizations in Georgia are still nearing levels not experienced since the state's summer surge. The latest data from the Georgia Department of Public Health also indicates newly confirmed COVID-19 cases continue to climb even beyond levels experienced during the summer. Now, at the time of this broadcast, 479,340 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in Georgia. And here's another number. 37,737 have been hospitalized, and of those, 6,859 were considered ICU admissions. Now, since March, the state has recorded 9,218 deaths. This is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. In other news, President-elect Joe Biden will visit Atlanta's historic Kirkwood neighborhood this afternoon. Biden will appear at a drive-in, get-out-the-vote rally, of course, for Democratic U.S. Senate runoff candidates Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff. That's going to take place at the Pullman Yard. 
Meanwhile, campaigning continues for current senators Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. And a reminder, those runoff elections are exactly three weeks away from today. And if you don't know, early voting is now underway in Georgia. And speaking of early in-person voting, we need to issue a correction. During yesterday's Closer Look, we reported that polling locations across the state would close at 7 p.m. That is not right. Polling locations closed at 7 p.m. Monday through Friday in Cobb and DeKalb counties. However, in Fulton County, polling locations closed at 6 p.m. And that's Monday through Friday of this week. We regret the error. And by the way, thank you, Brenda, who called me and left a message notifying us of the error. We really appreciate it. And as always, to find the polling location nearest to you, visit your county's Board of election site or visit the Secretary of State's website. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Three years ago on this very program, I had a conversation with Steve Howe, Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of WRS, and an urban planner named Dimitri Box. The city of Atlanta had just sold underground Atlanta to the South Carolina-based developers. And here's what Steve and Dimitri told Closer Look back on September 7th, 2017. We're really readapting what we want to do in the actual underground, what people think of as the underground. And so we've come up with a new set of plans. We're trying to um, adapt what goes in there to be something that's really cool and unique, get away from the mall that it was trying to be, Mm -hmm. and be a good mixture of some cool, I mean, some of those old buildings down there offer a really unique office type Mm -hmm. setting. So we think we can get some really cool businesses down there what we're calling the makers, um, people that are actually making, doing things, and um, and then some very unique um, retail components as well. Dimitri, when we talk about those trends and what he talked about in terms of how unique the underground portion is, is that part of the trends that people want to be a part of something that is, has a little bit of history to it but has a different flavor? You know, we always think about incubators and how they attract, you know, startups and, and things like that. So that underground area does it lend itself to being something unique to attract retail or, or, you know, businesses to come in that want to work underground? Very much so. I mean, the character of a place like that, like you said, is unique. And that's what a lot of newer businesses and people that are looking to sort of shed the the, the state and, and, and average look of the things in the suburbs, that's the places that they're attracted to. You know, in, in Atlanta now, you can see that area west of uh, Atlantic Station, all that industrial property out there is becoming a very hip mm-hmm. and great place to be. Underground Atlanta will be the underground version of that. It's really interesting. It was interesting, but it's not going to happen, at least not by WRS. Underground Atlanta has been the source of another transaction. It's been sold by WRS. The 400,000-square-foot property was acquired by Billionaires Funding Group. So what's next for this historic downtown four-block property? Let's find out. Let's welcome Shanil Lalani. He's the CEO of Billionaires Funding Group, and he joins me now. Welcome to the program. Hey, how are you? Thank you. First question, I'm sure no surprise. Why acquire Underground Atlanta? Well, we bought Underground Atlanta because it is the underground, right? I mean, it's the most prominent site in Atlanta. Uh, we bought as we thought it was a really perfect fit in our model, you know, so. When you say a perfect fit in your model, take that further for our listeners. We have been buying a lot of value-add assets in our portfolio. So 
underground we thought it was a similar opportunity that this thing has a lot of this property has a lot of value to be added mm -hmm. so had the underground been on your company's radar for a while so it has been a radar but not as a standpoint of acquisition i would say it has been on a radar that we all have visited the property or have looked at it you know over the years that hey nobody has really been able to do anything with the property so yeah. let me ask you this, if you're willing to share this information how much is this investment costing billionaires funding group right now we're not disclosing that uh, everything is still confidential but i'll tell you that, that there was no financing involved in this transaction so y'all just wrote a check if that's what it is right <laughs> <laughs> Well, considering that WRS, I believe, paid $35 million for it, so you look at the uh, <laughs> property value increase, we should, I guess right. we can all determine that you all paid a pretty good, mm -hmm. sizable amount for it. Let's shift for a moment and talk about you sure. and Billionaires Funding Group. Tell our listeners mm -hmm. a little bit about the background of BFG here. So, BFG is basically, we formed it in 2017. And it was the whole strategy was that we're going to focus on buying value add assets. Mm -hmm. um, and we're, we're going to buy retail office space, a lot of commercial office buildings. So that was this, that is what BFG is about. Mm -hmm. um, we have been in commercial real estate, I would say, since early you know 2010s. And we've been focusing on that. So I think we just finished a decade. So we are pretty well experienced. Let me ask you this. What's the criteria for determining what would be a good investment, as you just put it, a value-added asset? What are you all mm -hmm. looking at? Are you obviously not just the value of the property, but I imagine the location. And then you, mm -hmm. I imagine you all do some type of projection analysis in terms of what kind of return you can get on it and, and how successful it'd be. I imagine y'all do all that, correct? Yes, that's right. When you looked at the underground Atlanta, what what is the projected value asset in the future here? How do you see this four block property? What do you see mm -hmm. it emerging into? So I would say when you look at the underground, everybody, or at least we thought, you know, we should compare this with the Avalon, with the Pond City market. So that's what we looked at that hey this could be something turned into something similar so that's where the value add is i mean if you look at you know what those properties you know traded at once they were developed we thought that this could be a significant value add for us you know that downtown atlanta is still trying to find its identity mm -hmm. i think we all can agree that maybe mercedes-benz stadium has been you know, a plus, but there's there really hasn't been that that central attraction, and the underground Atlanta had always kind of been that. So, any idea in terms of what y'all want to do with that space? Do you want to put more shops? You heard what Steve Howe, the former owners of of it, what they said they wanted to do three years ago. Is that still the same concept in terms of businesses and restaurants and a hotel? I'll say that's going to be a similar plan. They have done some studies that led them to to that conclusion. And I think in order for this property to be successful, you need to have restaurants over there. You need to have retail. You need to have people living over there, not only just a hotel. So that is still the plan. Mm -hmm. Are you going to do this, Mr. Lalani, in phases? Can you break this down for our listeners who may be wondering? 
okay, but sure, give us a little bit more here. Yeah, right. So it's definitely going to be in phases. That is something that I feel that previous, like previous owners, not just WRS, but prior to that, that's what, in my opinion, that they've they've lacked where they tried to, you know, do it all at once mm-hmm. in one phase. Um, so I think for us to to come with a vision that at least what we know that has to go there, I think it makes sense to to start developing that and then start getting that getting that momentum over there, start building there. So people will start believing in it that hey, something is finally going on at the underground. Mm-hmm. So it's gonna be a multi-phase process. And first phase, we're looking to submit plans sometime next year. You and I both know that things you can't control, whether it be the market or the economy, can change a lot of plans when it comes to development. Mm-hmm. This is a historic four-block property. As of right now, will you all be able to keep those buildings? Or are you looking at that maybe you need to knock some down? What's your plan here? Any idea in terms of the actual buildings? What what exactly buildings are you talking about? Well, I mean, you have so you have the the building. I guess it's a hotel now. You have some of those buildings, uh-huh. and are you going to demolish any of the buildings, or are you going to just build out from what is there? You're not going to. Right. So we're not looking to demolish anything. We're going to keep what is there, mm-hmm. and we're going to basically uh, build on top of it or build what's available, and then at least that could be the first phase, and then we'll see how successful project or that that block or or that phase was mm-hmm. based on that we'll we'll adjust accordingly but in my opinion i think this is like a four or five phase process so total completion could take a few years is what you're saying definitely you mentioned Paw city market and some other developments around atlanta mm-hmm. and Paw city market has been you could say call it a success but foot traffic is so important when you talk about downtown because there's no place to park <laughs> Right. So, you know, you got to get people to come down there. And then when it gets dark, mm-hmm. you know, people tend to leave. So what's more important for you all right now? Do you want to have something that people who live already in the downtown area, they can, you will attract more of them? Or sort of what's your vision in order to get mm-hmm. people, you know, to visit this place and, and to spend money? And also to get businesses to want to you know, mm-hmm. open up or move into the underground Atlanta? Well, for example, if you look at right, Mercedes Stadium or any, you know, Hawks, you know, stadium, right? So if somebody wants to go to a game or if somebody wants to go to downtown, they find a way to do it. Either they, they use Uber or they find parking or they take the MARTA. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a similar approach here that we want to create a nice environment where people are not, you know, people are com- comfortable using the MARTA. So mm-hmm. if somebody wants to come from Gwinnett or the cab, or at least they can, they can take the MARTA uh, down the underground, right? I mean, you have literally MARTA is connected to the underground. So mm-hmm. that is really value, you know, that we can bring, uh, this property brings, in fact. So, so we're going to depend on those people who are going to be, you know, willing to take the MARTA, come over here, who does not want to pay for parking or who doesn't want to park and walk a few steps. Um, the easiest way is for them to take a MARTA. But if you look at what what Newport and what Sentinel Yards are doing, mm-hmm. they're going to have a lot, lot of people living there as well. So this is just a few blocks away from them. So we're going to have a lot of foot traffic as well. There are people that are just walking towards the underground. We have so many Georgia State students that are living on campus. Mm-hmm. Everybody can just walk literally to the underground. So 
so we're, we're looking at like you know not just we're depending on people who are coming from outside or people who are dra- who, who are driving and then they're going to have to park and then come to the underground so we're actually looking at all the venues where we want foot traffic to come over there along with people riding the the transportation services and also people who can come in and park mm-hmm. and and then and come to the underground all right cuz you know when you talk about parking in downtown atlanta <laughs> <laughs> As we wrap up, Mr. Lalani, I've talked about phase one. When might folks start to see some changes with the underground Atlanta? Do you want to give mm-hmm. a projected date here? I would say sometime next year is we're looking to submit some plans. Mm-hmm. We're going to make some announcements sometime next year. It's too premature to talk uh, what month or, or sure. when are we looking at. But I would say to take some time of digesting everything as we're meeting the neighborhoods, we're meeting you know the, our neighbors. So I think a good plan is where we'll submit something by next year with, with hopes of, st- of breaking ground mm-hmm. the following year. You mentioned meeting your neighbors and meeting the community. Mm-hmm. I take it that is going to be a part of this, these phases too, getting to know yes, your, your neighbors, the community. How important is yes, that for you all? So. It's very important, honestly. It's, it's super important that we're going to talk to our neighbors. We're going to talk to the community. We also want their feedback as well because we're going to need their support because they're the ones who are going to come to this come to this property, right, eventually. So mm-hmm. it's very important where they feel that they had a say in this property and then their voices were heard. Mm. You know, in, in reading the uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution article, and they described you as a, quote, mystery man unknown to those <laughs> in Atlanta politics and right. development <laughs> circles. What did you make of that, mystery man? Huh. Who are you, well, Mr. Lamani? <laughs> <laughs> right. I just laughed at that, right? I was like, hey, it's okay. I mean, they have an opinion, and and honestly, a lot of people are just wondering, you know, where did we come from? So it is a perfect, you know, way to describe it, but we are a mystery, but probably a few months from now, we're not going to be a mystery. Everyone's going to know who we are. Uh, we have other things that are planned uh, in downtown, so which which everybody will hear that, you know, we are uh, we are focusing in downtown area. So, so I mean... Oh, you have other projects that you're going to Correct. talk. Okay, yes. so you, you're mm-hmm. trying to own all of downtown Atlanta, Mr. Kalani? Is that what you're <laughs> well, saying? Not trying to own all of it, but uh, I think our, our, our focus is going to be shifted, right, now mainly towards downtown. So, mm-hmm. As you know, like like I told you, our retail, I mean, our portfolio of real estate has been throughout the state of Georgia. Mm-hmm. So now that, you know, we control one of the most prominent sites in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So our focus is going to be around that area. So so if there's any any other opportunities, you know, that comes along the way, we're going to definitely look at it. And we're actually looking at some other opportunities as well. Mm-hmm. Because, again, we're just focusing in that area. So mm-hmm. that tells the public, right? That tells everybody that we're focused, we're motivated, uh, we're committed to the downtown. How would you describe downtown Atlanta right now mm-hmm. in terms of its potential? And it's been, you know, mm-hmm. kind of not necessarily dormant for so long since right. the Olympics, some would say, that not mm-hmm. much has happened. There have been some development, sure. but mm-hmm. it's still not happening. You know what I mean? Correct. Right, right. So I would say downtown has enormous potential, honestly, in my opinion. And I believe people who are studying or looking at downtown will will believe that as well or, you know, uh, will also say the same thing. So and I also believe that timing is very important right here. Mm -hmm. If you look at other areas of downtown has already developed. So this is the only side of the town 
where it needs, you know, it needs people uh, coming in and, you know, coming up with nice visions, right? So if you look at TIM and Newport and us, I think we, we make a perfect team where this is what it's going to take to to redevelop the whole entire of South downtown. Mm-hmm. So timing is very important and we all have same same goals, same vision. So I believe, I really think that we're, we're in a really good situation right now to, to, to redevelop, you know, South downtown. Even in terms of when I mentioned things you can't control, if we are headed into a recession, some say we're already in a recession mm-hmm. due to the pandemic. Right. Although we know the housing market hasn't suffered at all. Not Correct. sure about the commercial property side of this, mm-hmm. but even in a pandemic, you all see that this is still mm-hmm. a good time to purchase and start making plans to develop the underground. I believe this last year or this entire year, it was very shaky. You know, it looked like we are in a recession, as some would say we are, some would say we're not. So I believe that we're almost, you know, we're all we're almost done with this pandemic, right? Hopefully the vaccine works. Mm-hmm. So I believe if we are out of this phase, then the next ten years is only gonna go it's only gonna go up. It's not gonna go down. So if people were making moves during this time as we were um, I, be- I really think that going forward, it's only going to be better. All right. Shanil Lalani is the CEO of Billionaires Funding Group, and they've just acquired the underground Atlanta historic four block property. Mr. Lalani, thank you so much for taking the time and answering the questions. I really appreciate it. I will just, this is, you know, You're just welcome. me. I always ask of this when I talk about new development in Atlanta. <laughs> Can you make sure you get a good barbecue and ice cream place in there? <laughs> Well, we already have an ice cream place over there. If you haven't tried it, you should definitely try it out. Where? Where is nice. ice cream place? So right over there, right? They actually, in fact, opened, I would say, a few months ago. Oh, they just got there. No wonder. It's called ice cream. Yes. <laughs> yes. It's super nice. Yeah, it's a nice concept. You should right. definitely visit over there if you haven't already. All right. Well, Mr. Lalana, I yeah, appreciate you. We'll, we'll make sure we we'll also put the barbecue over there as well. <laughs> I appreciate you taking the time. Best of luck to you and invite us out as you all get to start doing some of this development. Definitely. Thank you so much. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at CF greateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. News outlets, whether print, digital, broadcast, or streaming, it's been a busy year for all of them. So much to cover, right? The pandemic, the presidential election, and a year of protests calling for racial justice, spurred by the police killing of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and even here in Atlanta, Richard Brooks. As newsrooms covered these events related to racial justice, it also spurred many of America's newsrooms to check their own internal racial climate. From how communities of color are covered, 
to the longstanding inequities within newsrooms, and that includes public media. One area, the lack of diversity in executive and managerial positions. Here at Public Broadcast in Atlanta, well, we have some news of our own. Earlier today, the PBA Board of Directors announced longtime cable executive and veteran Atlanta business community leader Jennifer Dorian as the next president and CEO of Public Broadcast in Atlanta, and she joins me now. Thank you, Rose. It's great to be here. Let's begin with this. How would you, and I've asked everyone this question, and I've been asking this question since March, how would you sum up this year in general? 2020. Yeah. Volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous, right? VUCA, the uh, acronym that a lot of people throw around from the military over to the business world. I think this year is the poster child for VUCA. Mm. Just when you get uh, settled, another wave of massive change comes along. You know, this was something that I just read from the Pew Research Center, which I thought was really telling. They had a new survey that revealed, and I'm quoting here, many Americans have difficulty in distinguishing sources that do their own reporting from those that don't. What do you make of that? Well, that's tremendous. That's probably at the root of uh, a lot of our problems. If people aren't aware of that difference, I'm very grateful to public media and other outlets that are dedicated to credible, uh, impartial, objective news reporting. Mm-hmm. And I certainly understand stepping into this position at WABE that, you know, we've got to have an informed republic that agree to a set of facts. And we also have to understand how do we all commonly agree to verify facts. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm, I'm proud of the work you all do. I know people really can get in a bubble and listen to unsubstantiated sources. And I'm, I'm glad, you know, that stations like WABE and terrestrial radio, you're ubiqu- we're ubiquitous. We are um, free. We're accessible. And those are such important things for a credible news organization to reach across the digital bubbles and share a set of common facts that are substantiated. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this. Where do you get your news and information from? I am big on WABE, NPR, for sure. New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal. Those are my go-tos. I also, you know, PBA's BBC is a great source. I, I lean a lot on public media. When you reflect on the importance of credible news coverage in 2020, how would you assess it? Do you think the American public receives a good, healthy dose of credible news coverage? I do think it's available. Yeah. And I feel like at least it's in the public conversation, whether new, you know, if you go back three years ago, I think many more people were unwittingly and unknowingly um, propagating, sharing and forwarding, you know, disreputable, unsubstantiated sources. Mm. And today, at least there seems to be more conversation. What is credible? What has integrity? And um, so I think we're making strides there that the first part of solving a problem is being aware of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I feel 2020 has probably been a year that has shown a light on the importance of integrity and and journalism. That being said, we both know public media has always had a pretty solid level of confidence among listeners and viewers. But through your lens, what is the role of public media to the community that it serves? Well, without a doubt, um, it it starts with serving the community. So topics, I think it's, it's great that it's not 
harnessed by commercial interest or, or a goal of profitability. It's harnessed on a goal of relevance and building the community. So covering topics that benefit society is a big part of the role. Um, helping the community bond and know itself and understand deepen understanding across any um, barriers is important. Being credible and having integrity, being accessible to all. And then we get into kind of the civic engagement side of public media, you know, having an informed republic, holding people in power accountable for their actions if and when they violate our rights. So mm-hmm. um, I think it can be as small as community neighbor to neighbor community understanding and as grand as a healthy democracy is the role of public media. So when we talk about all that you just told me and then the approach to community engagement what is your philosophy in terms of making sure that the community understands, whether it's WABE or WBEZ or KQED out yeah. in San Francisco, that there is a commitment to not just covering, but also ensuring that we are connected to all the communities? Because there are so many within the community at large, right? Yeah, exactly. The reason I'm so excited to join the WABE team is there's first and foremost this mission of free press healthy democracy and local news. But I'm excited to wrap around that some community driven priorities. So what I mean is I see the stations can be catalysts for community understanding. The stations be catalysts for taking on priority issues that we agree in our community matter. Those issues could be equitable economic development. That's a story that could come out of Atlanta and be relevant nationwide. Mm -hmm. You know, with um, people of color entrepreneurship, with, places like the Russell Center for Innovation and Entrepreneurship, the Lola, the Gathering Spot. You know, um, I think Atlanta can be on the map by covering that that topic well and convening people who care about it. So I'm hoping that we can bring um, major donors, corporations, foundations together just on that topic, for example, and, you know, be having summits about it and, and coverage and actions. Are there any challenges you see overall with that public media is facing because we- Sure. Well, as you know, I'm from outside the system and I'm joining with this new job starting in January, but the two, um, I'd say challenging trends that I see for public media are, are probably in common with commercial media. And that is number one, we've got legacy technologies that we, you know, we built our businesses on whether it's broadcast TV or terrestrial radio or cable we have to figure out how are we gonna to innovate to meet audiences where they're going with digital streaming and social. So that's a big area of focus for the future with um, PBA. And secondly, you know, we're across corporate America and public media, we need to do a better job having diverse teams and diverse leadership. Mm-hmm. This past summer, obviously with the nationwide calls for racial equity, we know that that penetrated so many areas from corporate America, to professional and collegiate sports, and even some media outlets express statements of solidarity with Black Lives Matter or some type of similar narrative. And I want to ask you, do you think media outlets should declare such statements? I, you know, I'm not in the job yet. I'd like to learn what the history has been, but absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of corporations across the country stepping up and caring about civic engagement. This summer, as a volunteer, I mobilized the business sector for election preparedness in a nonpartisan forum. And it was amazing how companies want to be involved in, you know, racial equity, civic engagement, to healthy democracy, 
Uh, so yeah, I would, I would need to get into the job and learn, but I see no reason why our, um, our attitude, our actions, our values would not align with the fact that black lives matter, black lives matter. It's, it's been a time for this, whether you want to call it a racial awakening or a racial reckoning, depending on whom you ask. That being said, if we're talking about diversity within a public media organization, you know, I've heard people say diversity is something you say, inclusion is what you do. What is your approach to this whole space of diversity and inclusion? Sure. Well, first off, my approach is in keeping with what I'm seeing come out of WAVA, which is Buried Truths, the podcast, which is bottom of the map, right? Talking about hip hop, Southern hip hop, and why that matters to the world and the casting of those shows the the look back at um the history of racial inequity and injustice in georgia um those are the kind of stories i am fascinated with and want to rally resources for Mm -hmm. my personal philosophy is you know diversity diverse perspectives are to be appreciated and embraced Um, we have to go beyond tolerance and acceptance right i've done a lot of homework myself on unconscious bias and gone through training and a mandated training for all my staff on unconscious bias and um, and conscious bias as well. <laughs> uh, and so I understand that it's way more, like you said, about in- just inclusion, tolerance, acceptance. It's got to go all the way to appreciation and listening and having a voice and inviting conversation um, and so that that can inform our editorial decisions, our creative decisions, our talent decisions. No, no doubt, diverse teams outperform non-diverse teams every time in every arena. That's part of my philosophy. Um, and also, I believe in making sure everyone has a chance. You know, just the opportunity to engage and contribute can be tough. I've seen pipelines um, mm-hmm. that are not for talent, for example, in my former life in corporate media world, where a job description or a... Um, auspices are a big deal in Hollywood, right? Like, oh, what have you done before? And who do you know? And mm-hmm. what's the on-ramp here? And that breeds a lot of sameness. And a lot of, in, in the history of entertainment, a lot of white male power and a lot of white male hiring. And so what I found is you have to break up the supply chain. You have to change the job description sometimes. You have to make sure, are we really describing what we need? What? Why do we have to have auspices? What if we had fresh thinking? What if we had expertise so an example is film criticism, where Robert Osborne started, is a largely a white male um, history of a talent pool. And I had to really um, shake it up to find, to convince people that there were lots of people who were available in film criticism who were not white and not male. How'd you do that? So, so we reached out to, and we, we, you know, looked at Twitter, was a great place to find film criticism from, and YouTube. And then we reached out to the African-American Film Critics Association that I was telling other folks that wasn't that hard to solve the math there. Mm-hmm. Call the African-American Film Critics Association, get to know them, bring them on the air, um, start a relationship with individuals in that community. And sure enough, it was a great pipeline for us. So I think a, um, a lot of the challenges in corporate and, and public media is we've got to look new places. And um, for example, you know, internship programs, apprenticeships, um, mm-hmm. starts at the university level, clubs. Um, this summer, I hired an intern from the Black Journalist Association through GSU. We've got to look new places. Well, let me ask you this, because based on everything that you just said, then 
you have a specific ideology as it relates to your role or rather yeah. the responsibility that a CEO and president should play in leading or fostering this culture change, or, or it could be a, a very needed culture change or one that, that's an enhanced. What is your approach to that? I'm proactive on championing diversity. And I, I really have a track record of hiring some of the most diverse teams at uh, Turner when I ran strategic planning. It was a group of eight people, but we were um, highly collaborative and worked with all the brands. And I'm really proud of the team that I built. I championed some people's careers who are in Atlanta, working leaders, Melissa McGee Proctor, who is now the CMO of the Hawks. I worked with her for 20 years mm -hmm. in various roles and I have been a mentor to her. I'm very proud of that. Nicole Jones, who works at Delta as an innovation officer, worked on that team. Um, I'm very proud of my track record of, of hiring, developing and championing talent, particularly people of color. And um, I also, when I was at Turner Classic Movies, as I mentioned, you know, we all went through unconscious bias training together. We all discussed where that needed to be applied. Curating classic film can be very tricky because <laughs> of a history of um, <laughs> racism and, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and many other social issues. So what deciding proactively what we were going to shine a light on and how we were going to curate and what voices were going to help us make that curation was a big part of my job. And I took it quite seriously. And I think it was a competitive advantage for Turner Classic Movies. That's how we made classic film relevant. That's how we got covered by LA Times, New York Times, New Yorker, is by talking about um, curation from varied perspectives. Um, and then, like I said, talent decisions. I'm very proud of my track record of you know, selecting Ava DuVernay for a year-round series of bringing Jacqueline Stewart on board uh, to the TCM hosts. Um, and I continue to, I plan to continue that type of proactive curation mm -hmm. and talent championing in the new role. We have some open headcount that are big jobs and I want to build a diverse team. So that's what I've been thinking about. With the training with the that you took, yeah. that you were involved in, with the, what did you learn? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. I came to it as a leader at Turner for Turner Women, which was a 2000 person business resource group around the world of, of females that worked at Turner who came together to improve our skills, but also improve our representation. Mm -hmm. And so we went to Dr. Banaji from Harvard. If you go to implicit.edu, she's an amazing teacher. She came to Turner. We did a conference with our leadership and we all explored the headwinds that people who are different face. So whether it's because you're um, female or a person of color or you know LGBTQ, it's some of the similar headwinds where you don't fit in mm -hmm. um, and people have to get comfortable and make a space for you at the table and listen and give you a chance to talk where the good old boy network or the chance to, um, as we were talking about, the pipeline for talent, the access has to be more open. Um, whether it's self-inflicted, um, one self-inflicted headwind that I'm very passionate about is letting go of perfectionism. I grew up with some awesome bosses and they were not perfect, let mm -hmm. me tell you. They, but they were amazing and they were free to be themselves and free to take chances and be creative. And you can't do any of that when you're holding on to perfectionism. So I, I really can't wait to work with the WAB and PBA teams about how are we going to create an environment that's safe for trust, authenticity, transparency, and 
creative risk-taking. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that means you're walking away from some cookie cutter version of perfectionism. So those are some of the headwinds Banaji helped us learn about. If you just join us, I'm joined by Jennifer Dorian. Why? Well, she's the new president and CEO of Public Broadcast in Atlanta. You left Turner after 20 years. Why? What was, it was just time. What was behind that decision? I entered Turner in 2000 as a vice president of branding for TNT. And I had this great juicy job uh, project to rebrand TNT from general entertainment to something special. And I led all the research um, and some of the implementation for what the new brand would be. We did We Know Drama. And very quickly after that, we did TBS Very Funny and took Court TV to True TV. Um, But once I sort of accomplished that setup for the brand portfolio, I moved into general strategy, then I moved into strategic planning. Anyway, my capstone job was being general manager of Turner Classic Movies. And I knew I wanted that job to learn about fans Mm -hmm. and to learn about streaming. And I got to do that for five years, Rose. And by the time I finished launching Filmstruck, an art house streaming film service um, and growing it, and that's right when AT&T bought Time Warner. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed to me that I'd been there 20 years. I'd learned everything I had set out to learn in the cable industry about branding and fans and programming and the Hollywood system and then streaming. I was like, it's time to move on. And most of the jobs that I would have been um, working on would have, I, I was a, um, I advocated for Turner Classic Movies to return to Warner Brothers mm-hmm. and it did. And so most of my jobs would have been in LA or New York and I want to be in Atlanta. That was the first guiding principle for my next chapter is I wanna live and work in Atlanta. So for me, it was a fairy tale ending. It was time to leave um, Turner and, um, I was packaged out with AT&T and um, it's given me the opportunity to take a deep breath mm-hmm. and um, a closer look myself <laughs> and decide, yeah, and decide how I was. And I, so my criteria going forward was I'm going to be a nonprofit. I'm going to be in Atlanta working on the community that I care about. And then this public media opportunity came along and I was like, wow, I can put to, to work mm-hmm. my knowledge of media innovation and a little bit about production. So I'm excited. And I'm, my, I also view my number one role is going to be to rally resources yeah. for the stations and, to, and for the free press and for our community. That being said, because obviously that is the one of the major differences when we talk about commercial yeah. or, or cable media outlets and then the public media, uh, which is rallying resources or as we plain folks say, got to go get some money. Um, money. How do you view that? Is it more of a philanthropic or more partnerships what is I think your it's all of that but what i think is so exciting is wabe and atl pba have a unique position we are the only stations for npr and pbs that are dedicated to atlanta we only concern ourselves with this six million metro area audience and we need to tell the stories of this dedicated um community so I think there are many corporations that are interested in helping uh, defend and support free press mm-hmm. and in support local news. That's the nucleus of what we do. But then I want to create containers, if you will, for support from corporations, from major donors, from foundations around issues that are priorities in our community. And to me, I see them being um, areas like equitable economic development. I know there are corporations and foundations that care about that topic and are looking for a place 
to take action in our community, to gather like-minded people and convene conferences to have coverage, to support coverage, to shine a light on black people of color, black entrepreneurs. So that's just one example where I think we can add that to the funding needs of local news and free press. Another example could be global health because Atlanta is such a center for um, global health innovation mm -hmm. and work. Another could be um, diverse storytelling and, and diversity in the arts because we our population, our artistic community. So what's cool is the more we double down on Atlanta and Atlanta storytelling, those stories will resonate nationwide and globally. I love the uh, influencer Instagram group, Atlanta influences everything. Not very humble, but very true. Uh, whether it's politics right now or health um, or arts, you can see that Atlanta is a great microcosm for storytelling. And we get to uniquely focus on that. And I believe I can speak for my colleagues in the WAB newsroom and then over at City Lights. And, you know, huh. we, we value, you know, the importance of our job to the community. And I think sometimes folks don't quite understand that there is a editorial line too that should not be crossed. Um, what is your approach to making sure that if you are gonna enter into those partnerships that they understand? Yeah, I have like three really strong reasons I'll be great at that. Number one, I grew up in a newspaper family. My, I was born to a newspaper reporter uh, who worked in uh, tiny newspapers, medium-sized newspapers, and ultimately the AJC. And um, I was raised to understand that, you know, you respect the free, free press, you respect the free press, and there is a separation of church and state. So first off, I got that going for me. Second, I worked at Turner Classic Movies where I was not the leading expert on classic film. They already had 65 experts on classic film who I revere. And what I was was an additive um, operator, a strategic planner, as a general manager who was complementary to their skills. Mm -hmm. And I intend to do the exact same thing with our stations. Uh, WAB is such a respected news organization and we have in place a chief content officer. We have in place, you know, eight, I, I, I'm, I'm on the job, I'm new, but you know, like eight to 10 full-time reporters. And I will be an additive complementary role in that. So what I like to do and what I did at TCM thirdly is I like to collaborate with the um, editorial people and say, I don't want to tell you what stories to do. And I don't want to yeah, don't do that. That's not going to work. Yeah. I'm not going to put any parameters on this based on sponsorship. But what I do think we can agree to are here are some priority pillars that we plan to cover, whether it's equitable economic development, global health, business, arts, et cetera. I think we can we can have share with our community a commitment to the, that lane of coverage and that's what I can go out and raise resources for so church and state all the way and finally as we wrap up earlier you talked about your leadership style let me ask you this how do you deal with conflict where do you see your role as someone uh, being able to to address that yeah I you know I learned a long time ago that Conflict can be our, our teacher and our friend and that create, what I, I really love about work is the places where you find creative tension, whether it's a tension between uh, strongly held beliefs or a tension around how to get something done or priorities, that's just gonna be informative to all parties if we practice good listening and um, come to some mutual understanding. I, um, I, I lean into 
creative tension. I lean into conflict. I think crucial conversations. I'm not afraid. I, I actually enjoy sparring when it comes to like creativity or debating. Um, I'm good with that, but it's got to start on a foundation of trust and authenticity. As a leader, I, you know, you got to lead so people will join you. Mm-hmm. What, what journey are you going on? What objective are you trying to reach? You got to lead so people will join you. So that means you've got to be trustworthy. You've got to be a good listener and a, and a humble person. You've got to be compassionate. As we talked about, um, we're all going to be learning new things and trying new things. So we have to have compassion for each other. Um, I believe in clarity. Clarity mm-hmm. is so important. What What is the objective that we're trying to hit together? What is each other's roles and responsibilities? I'm a big fan. I could go on on another show all about um, work-life integration and personal responsibility and flexibility. I'm a big proponent. My boss a long time for 18 years was Steve Coonan, who mm-hmm. now is the CEO of State Farm Arena and the Hawks. Mm-hmm. He's still a mentor. And, you know, he raised me to be personally accountable for my um, responsibilities. And he did not care about, you know, where, when, or how I got things done. I had a lot of flexibility and that allowed me to raise my family and to excel, I feel, as a, um, a person at home and also as a person at work. Um, teamwork's huge. We've spent a lot of time today talking about diversity of mm-hmm. perspectives is crucial to any successful team and um, giving each other the room to learn and be imperfect. So that's my, those are my leadership tenets. And I think they can include conflict resolution, mm-hmm. you know, through listening and through being comfortable with creative tension. What do you want the community to know about your personal? Yeah. So I think what I would want the community to know as I enter this job is that I'm very motivated to help defend the free press and local news, but I'm also very motivated to double down on Atlanta, spend the next, you know, 10 or 20 years in my energy on um, making our community a stronger place and, and, inviting the stations and our um, all the members of our community, whether it's the listeners, the citizens, the corporations, the foundations, let's collaborate together on the priority issues that we face. And as we solve things in Atlanta, it will help the whole nation and the world solve some uh, very similar issues. Jennifer Dorian, next president and CEO of Public Broadcast in Atlanta. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. 
New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.